Welcome to the next podcast from Millinery Info. This episode is with Lisa Tan. Lisa is an Australian milliner who is based in London. She creates pieces that have a classic style with a modern edge. Her pieces are stocked in Maya stores across Australia and she has been part of the Royal Ascot Millinery Collective that happens in partnership with the Royal Ascot Racecourse and Fenwick of Bond Street. We'd like to thank our Patreon podcast supporters, Ms Haiti Millinery, the Millinery Association of Australia, Catherine Sherry Millinery, the Hat Academy, the Essential Hat and Louise MacDonald Milliner. Follow the link on our website to find out how you can become a sponsor. Thank you so much for speaking with me today, Lisa. I'd love to start with how did you first get into millinery? Through fashions on the field, which I think a lot of people are now coming through fashions on the field and becoming milliners. Um, but I, I kind of went the long route, I guess. I did fashion design first and I used to live in Perth, which I have to clarify because a lot of people think I used to live in Melbourne, which I never actually did. I just went there a lot. <laughs> so I was in Perth <laughs> studying um, fashion design and had got to a certain point where I decided I wasn't ready to be a designer. Like I loved it. I loved making clothes and obviously that's where the fashions on the field part came in because I used to make my own outfits but then when it came to making hats there was one milliner in Perth who made hats and she had the monopoly basically and she didn't want to teach anywhere either which was kind of devastating for someone who wanted to learn millinery and so I used to do what I could and I remember going to Spotlight once and finding what was it like five meters of horrible light blue cinema and thinking this is what they make hats out of this is great so i took it home <laughs> and put it on the clothesline spray painted it white and then somehow did something on the bias to make it do what i wanted it to do and yeah had this hat and wore it to the caulfield cup and i've got to say it wasn't a good hat but when I look back at it now, I'm like, oh, that actually wasn't as horrible as what I thought it was. So that was kind of the first part of my hat making career. And I vowed that if I ever moved to a place where they did millinery, I would definitely do a course in it. And that's what happened when I ended up in London. I was just really quite disenchanted with my job and where it was going. So I quit, just literally up and quit one day while my partner was on holiday. And he was like, what did you do? What did you do? We have to pay rent. I'm like, no, it's fine. It's fine. And um, I did a short course at Central Martins, which was five days. And at the end of that, I was like, yep, I'm going to pursue this and see what happens. Wow. Had you pursued anything in the fashion field after you graduated from your studies or it was completely, completely different? No, it was completely the same. Like I, Everything I've done has always been in fashion in one way or the other. Uh, even when I moved to London, I, I was quite lucky. I actually got into Burberry. So I was, that was one of the things I wanted to do. I wanted to work for a major brand see how it all operated it's just that i didn't go to the creative side of burberry i ended up in the um more marketing e-commerce division which was kind of a bit of a departure but by then i'd also studied journalism and pr so i guess it, it was kind of a combination of the two in some way and yeah i ended up in uh e-commerce at burberry and then got poached by a swimwear label to head up their website division and then realized that my career was going in a completely different path than i thought it was and it was a company that I'm not going to name, but everyone was jumping ship at that point in time. It was just, it wasn't a great time for the company. And they didn't do anything wrong by me. I just thought this is probably my time to go and do something before I get pigeonholed and I can't get out again. Yeah, it was a queue. So from that queue, um, how did you start building your millinery brand? 
I interned with a milliner that was literally two streets away from where I lived uh, after I did the St. Martin's course. I can't remember who taught that one, but I remember asking her at the end of it, you know, how is it if I wanted to go and get an internship? And she just turned around to me and went, oh, you'll never get one. It's so hard. Like, I've got a list for people who want to intern with me. Um, you know, you have to do way more. There are girls coming out of Kensington and Chelsea College. Well, not girls, but, you know, milliners coming out of uh, Kensington and Chelsea College. You've got to compete with them. You'll just never get anything. So I went, prove you wrong, lady. <laughs> <laughs> and I approached Judy, um, who was then two streets away from me, thought, this can't hurt, walked in one day and said, hi, I'm looking for an internship. Do you take interns on? And he's like, yeah, we do, but we don't pay you. I said, that's fine. I just want to learn. And he said, send me an email with, you know, what you have and, and we'll go from there. And he said, yeah, absolutely. Please come in whenever you want. And I stayed there for over a year. So it was that one where at the beginning he said, we can't pay you. And I was good with that. But then you know, towards the end, as we started making hats and they started selling, he was really good about it and he always gave me a percentage. So I really, really appreciated that. And um, from there, I did a little collection. And then when I went back to Melbourne that year, I approached Maya and David Jones, which I thought, what the hell? Like, you know, what can go wrong? Let's just have a look and see. And we'd done a full lookbook shoot. A friend of mine was uh, working in the photography department at Burberry at that time. And then I had another friend who was modeling. So we did this shoot together and did a lookbook, did it properly. And then, so we approached Maya and David Jones, nothing happened. And I was like, that's fine. I totally understand that. But then on my last day in Melbourne, I get this call from the then buyer at Maya saying, I've been trying to contact you all week. Your email isn't working. And I was like, Oh my God, are you kidding? He goes, no, we want to do your hats. Um, how long are you here for? And I said, well, I'm actually flying out tomorrow morning. She goes, well, if you can change a flight, please come in. So I did literally got on the phone, changed my flight, went to see her. And she was great because it was an autumn winter collection I'd taken because I still wasn't quite sure about the seasons. And obviously it was spring in Melbourne. So you guys would have been coming into autumn winter, which is why I thought it would have been autumn winter. However, they actually buy to the international guidelines. So if someone in, London is doing spring summer along with the rest of the international runways. They will buy spring summer at that time. So that's what she explained to me and said, look, really like your hats. We're placed already for autumn winter. Come back to me with a spring summer collection. So I went home, did up a collection, got it all ready. And I think it was maybe late January, early February, sent it off. <laughs> I get this email back going, oh, this buyer has now left and gone on maternity leave there's a new buyer here. And I just went, Oh my God, my heart sank. And I was like, that's it. That's it. And lo and behold, I think it was a few weeks later, she got back to me and went, yeah, no problem. We'll place an order. And that was it. That's how it came about. That's amazing. Um, and you want to jump back to your fashions on the field when you were, did you create all the pieces that you're wearing for your fashions on the field? Um, experiences? Yeah, back then I definitely did. It wasn't until I sort of became a milliner that I thought, hey, I can buy things now. <laughs> this is great. Um, but I always wanted to be original. So, yeah, before I stopped with Maya, there might have been one year actually when I was at Burberry and obviously I had access to the sample sales, which were epic. So <laughs> actually this is quite a funny story. I found um, a Burberry Prawson dress, which was about £2,000 in the sample sale for 75 absolute bargain I think there was a slight issue with the lining or something something was wrong but it was fine it fit me like a glove bought it wore it to the Melbourne Cup that year 
I get a tap on the shoulder from this lovely lady and she turned, I turn around and she's like, where did you get your dress from? I said, Oh, I bought it in London. And she's gone. <sighs> and I'm like, what's wrong? She goes, well, they literally hunted this one down for me. This I was guaranteed this was the only dress in Australia. <gasps> and I said, Oh my God, I'm so sorry. And she goes, where did you get, obviously they sell them in London. And I said, I shouldn't have told her. I said, I worked there. I actually bought this in the sample sale. Oh, and I, was, I just thought, I, oh. So yeah, that was kind of the point for me when I went, I should go back to making things because this just, it isn't fair on people who pay the money for the things. And to be fair, she looked amazing. She did much better than me in the competition. So I think that was karma. It was great. I was happy for her. Um, but yeah, yeah. I, I've always thought that if you can make your own outfits and fashions in the field, you have a distinct advantage over everybody else. Yes, yes, absolutely. And when you create those looks, what are you, you're looking to create something unique or how, how, you put, how do you put together your outfits for events such as that? Uh, when I used to make them, I was always trying to do something unique and whatever I kind of vibed towards, I guess, at the time. Um, because usually, obviously, the international shows would start September. So you'd kind of get a look into what was happening the following year, which was great because you could then jump on board that trend before everybody else had. So that was always my way of thinking is that I'd just absolutely devour those shows every night. I'd get on my laptop and I'd just look through so many photos, see things that I liked, um, and just sort of put things together in my mind and then obviously go out to the spotlight or lolling craft and try and find fabrics that worked. Um, sometimes it did, sometimes it didn't. We had to change direction, but yeah. And then I would spend two months, solid two months sewing. Good approach. And um, now we're going to jump back to your millinery now. Um, how, so you started your millinery in the UK and launched in Australia through Maya. Um, how have you found the growth in those two markets? And is, is that different for you? What you create, do you, when you're creating a piece, do you create something different for a different market or how do you manage, manage being um, a global brand? Really good question, actually, because it's been a lot of ups and downs and changes. And I'd say probably in the first couple of years, um, you know, it wasn't, it was fine. Whatever I was creating here was selling here and it was selling in Melbourne. There wasn't an issue. And then it reached a certain point when, and I think you probably would remember this as well, the jeweled headbands came in, people stopped wanting to wear hats. And that was a huge issue for me because I just, I don't do headbands. I never have done headbands. Um, back then, I should say, obviously it's changed now. And that was one for me where I said, I either have to move with the times and start doing some headbands, which is something I really wasn't comfortable with at that point, or I have to find another way to do this. And the buyer that Maya had at that time, which was probably like the third or fourth buyer I had worked with at that stage, <laughs> they were all fantastic. It changes over a lot, doesn't it? <laughs> she was my particular favourite though, because she had been there for four years by the end of her time there. And she really worked with you as well if you said i'm not sure about this what do you want to do she would give you really great feedback and we go backwards and forth until we found a happy medium so at that point i came to her and that was the year that i did the entire collection being voters because that's all i felt like i looked at some of the collections i'd noticed stephen jones did some really great voters for tom brown i think they were they had the tops cut off and ponytails sticking through and all sorts, but I loved them. And I thought, yeah, I'm going to go with voters. Just did a full collection of voters. And I said to her, I have to warn you, all I've done is voters this year. I am totally happy to do a separate collection for Maya specifically, because I feel like 
there's too much of a division between the markets now. What's selling in London isn't selling there. And I understand that because you are so different. And then she looked at the voters and she went, I love them. Let's not change anything. Let's just go with these. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. If you're sure, if you're absolutely sure. And she's like, no, no, let's give them a try and see what happens. And then trying to think of what the timeline was for this, because at some point, as I said, I didn't do headbands, but I did do a few veiled headbands, which went into an autumn winter collection. So that I was okay with. They were just really simple veiled headbands with bows or especially the one that I did with the velvet bows all over it. That kind of went gangbusters actually. And I think it was around that same sort of time as well, because my didn't generally buy autumn winter. They only bought spring summer. And I yes. said to her, I've done an autumn winter collection. I was exhibiting at London Fashion Week and that was why. And she's like, yeah, send it over. Let's have a look. And straight away they picked up on the veiled headbands and went, yeah, let's order these two. So they actually ordered two collections in conjunction with each other and very different pieces, but sold them as spring, summer for the following season. And it worked really well. So that was one of the things that did work was boaters. And obviously it's still working now. It is very, very on trend. I walked through um, Maya this, this evening, actually, and the, the trend they um, have advertised is bonus. So it's very interesting to watch knowing that it's um, been in the market for probably, what, the last four years? Yeah. At least I know that you've done like that collection when you first did that photo collection, that was probably a pivotal point of when that was really trending. And a lot of milliners have also created not obviously different to your ones, but it, it's been trending for a couple of years and to watch that siphon through and now be the trend Myra pushing is very interesting to see that, to see that happen. Yeah, definitely. And also I've noticed as well on the catwalks here uh, for London Fashion Week, which is 2020, so that will be like next year for you guys. Noel Stewart did voters with ties. Um, Harvey Sandos did some voters with ties. Like they're just not dying. So I guess we're still doing voters. And for your stockers over in London, um, do you have anyone that you sell through specifically or are they private clients that you're making for? Or how does your market in London work? Mainly private clients, mainly Royal Ascot. Um, I do still stock through Love Hats though. And that's been a really nice little relationship that's kind of, it's been different because it's worked differently to the way I'd stock to Maya. So Maya, you wholesale. So they would come to me, say, we're ordering this, and then they get sent off. I'd never see them again. They'd pay me. Everything's great. Um, with Love Hats, we, they have a different way of working whereby you do give them stock and then they pay you once it's sold. And we kind of done a couple of seasons doing that, and it was a bit, I don't even know how to word it, but it, like it went okay. And then just one particular season, um, they said to me, look, how about we take some of your samples, photograph them, put them on the website. Then if they sell, you can make them up. And I said, brilliant, totally happy to do that. And she goes, as long as you can kind of do it within like one to two weeks, because we don't want to leave it too long. I said, no, fine, let's, let's work on that. And that was probably a few years ago now. And that's what we've done since. And I mean, they still have those veiled headbands on their website. And I can't tell you how many times a year that I actually still get requests for orders for those. So yeah, it's, wow. it's been a nice little relationship and that works really well that way and I'm, I'm happy to do that. And how has your, um, since you first started with your course and your internship, how has how you make hats and approach your design process changed to how you are producing collections today? 
I think it's more commercial because once you have a bit of a library behind you of what you've done previously, you learn what sells and you learn what doesn't. And as soon as you pick up on a design, you're like, this is selling. How can we reinterpret that for next year so that it's still kind of similar, but a little bit different. Um, so although in saying that I probably should have done more of the veiled headbands because I haven't, but I'm still like selling the original ones. So that's probably why. Um, but especially boaters, boaters obviously have, as soon as that collection started to sell and people were wearing them and people wearing them both here, both in Australia and also actually in the U S uh, in the last couple of years or probably a year, I'd say I've had a lot more clients coming to me from the U S requesting boaters, which has been really, really great and really interesting to see as well. So boaters have always been there probably for the last four years like you said and I've tried to evolve them each season but every now and then I just go back to a classic and I just do it in a different color different ribbon and that's as evolved as it gets because I think if something sells you know and people want it and they still want it why not give it to them yeah absolutely and um but you're also a race goer yourself so um you just started a new instagram account also i've seen of your lisa tan styles um <laughs> so you're you're an avid race fan as well is that correct i am yeah that's how i got into this whole thing actually if we go way back to the very beginning uh my mother and grandmother were obsessed with the melbourne cup like obsessed every year they would go to a luncheon in perth they would both dress up and my mum was an artist. She sewed, but she was not a milliner. I can tell you that. However, she did make her own hats. She would make one particularly and update it every single year. And she'd do it out of cardboard. So she'd have this cardboard. And essentially, it was a boater, a wide brim boater made out of cardboard. And it had um, a crowd scene painted on the inside of it. And then on the edge of the boater, she actually had a fence. And then the brim would turf. And she'd stick little horses around like they were running past the winning post. And this hat just won every competition going around. Like she just, she knew she had it in the bag as soon as she walked in kind of thing. And they used to play dress ups and go to this every year. And as a little girl, I'd be like, I want to go to this looks like so much fun. I think when I was 12, they actually let me take a day off school so I could go. So I made my little outfit that day as well. And um, it wasn't until I was at, TAFE uh, when I was 16, 17. And I actually had the day off because I didn't have to be there because I wasn't at school. So we went to one together. I think I would have been 16 and I'd stood, I was studying fashion design at the time, which meant I made my entire outfit and it was just you know, a really lovely day. And we sat there and watched the race. And that was the first time I really genuinely got into the race as well and thought, this is so amazing. Can we go next year? So I literally like badgered her, badgered both my parents. Let's go to the Melbourne Cup. Dad was like, no, I'm not interested. Um, and then, yeah, my mum and my grandmother and I went to the Melbourne Cup the following year. And it's kind of been a tradition for me to do that since. I think there was a few years in between when I was at uni when I didn't quite go. Um, but more or less since the age of 17, I've been going back to Melbourne for the Spring Carnival. You attend the race days in the UK now as well. What are your, some of your favourite days to go to? and how does getting dressed up for those events change versus obviously the Melbourne Cup is quite a unique um, experience as well. And we've spoken with Carly, who is the Fashions on the Field winner, um, and she spoke about the culture of that Fashions on the Field. How does that differ to how you dress when you are going to the races in the UK? 
I kind of learned that everywhere has its own different theme. So it's not even just the UK versus Australia, it's, it's France as well, which is so different. And it's even within France, like dressing for Chanty versus dressing for Longchamp, it's a completely different equation altogether as well. Um, we're off to Longchamp next week for the ARC, so that should be a very interesting affair. Because <laughs> uh, I think people, you would think it's Paris, they're gonna be really chic, and it's just not the case. I've seen jeans in there before, I've seen all sorts of things. I've seen women in really chic suits, but you rarely see race wear as we know it in France. Although I will say Shanti is a bit different because it's held in summer. It's got that picnic vibe and there is a best dress competition. So as soon as you have a best dress competition, things kind of change. And I find that probably, although I haven't been to Ireland, from what I've seen in Irish competitions, they're very similar to Australia and how they would approach it there. The British. Um, getting there <laughs> that's what i say they still they still are very tutorial when it comes to dressing for the races so you know there's nothing better for them than a suit but in saying that obviously the new guidelines that came out for uh royal ascot were actually quite surprising in that you know it doesn't matter what gender you are it's the one that you feel you want to dress for and as long as you're within those confines we're totally okay with it which i think is a really forward move by then and something that hasn't been embraced in any other racing club around the world yet and also they were the first ones to really put it out there that you know jumpsuits are okay as well which is something that I obviously really really love wearing I love a jumpsuit and I think they are really elegant and really chic and why not wear them so yeah Royal Ascot's an interesting one it's it can be it's got extremes I guess is the way that I'd put it I feel like when you go to Australia you kind of know what you're going to get everyone's sort of Say you've got extremes from zero to 10. I feel like most people in Australia would be between four and eight. Whereas in London, you would literally get zero to 10 at Royal Ascot in one day. And yeah, there are some real misses. There are some real hits as well. And there's a lot of money is what I will say um, when it comes to dressing for Royal Ascot. And you can see it in the clothes. Like there are some super designer outfits out there. and probably you know easily i'd say 10 10 grand upwards i'm sure some people would pay for their outfits and that's kind of fun to see though as well because it's like seeing couture really you know that would be on the runway right in front of your eyes that's amazing that's amazing um and so when you're creating for your clients um do they come to you with their outfits or what's that process for you when you're creating a custom-made piece I always try and get a good guide of what their outfit is. Uh, I learned that early on when I sold a hat to someone in Australia and they just said, I really like it. I really want it. Didn't bother asking about what they were going to wear it with and sent it to them. And it was all kind of fine. I, I didn't hear back from her. So I assumed it was all great. And then a few months later, I actually ran into her and I was like, Oh, how'd you go? Did you wear the hat? And she turned around and said, I didn't. Um, the dress that I wanted it for, it was just completely wrong. She goes, it's fine, it's fine. I love the hat. I ended up selling it onto my friends. So don't worry about that. Like, it's good. But at the same time, I felt like I should have done more to know what she was wearing so I could have given her the piece that she really wanted. So now when people contact me, the first thing I say to them is, is this for a specific event and do you have your outfit already? Especially when it comes to Royal Ascot, you generally don't have to ask them that at all. They come to you and say, I've got this dress. I really want this. It's like, oh okay, sure, but you give me three days. That's a little bit tricky. <laughs> um, and yeah, I mean, most people, I would 
would come and say, I've got this dress, I've got this dress, what do you think? Uh, there are some clients though who are like, I don't have an outfit, I'm going to build it around your hat. So if that happens as well, then, you know, there's nothing I can do about it in that sense. You just hope that they manage to find something. Um, but I think it's nice to have that um, to and from and that personal experience because as a milliner, generally millinery is something that's bespoke. It's tailored towards an individual. And even if someone buys something online and I don't get to physically meet them, I want to have that experience with them and make sure that they're really happy with the end result. And your studio space for, um, we're doing this via video, but could you describe your space and maybe what like a, a day in your space looks like? My <laughs> I'm literally in this little room that is between the living room and the kitchen. So it's where the dining table used to sit. And I had every every ounce of me was like, I'm going to take the spare room. That's going to be my studio. I'm going to change it. It's going to be great. And yeah, I don't know what happened. I ended up here instead. I think because in my last apartment, we had a spare room for the last six months because our flatmate moved out. I was in between moving to here and there. And so I actually did take the spare room and that was amazing because there were these amazing big closets. I put everything in there and I had my work bench and I had this I had like it's just such a nice space and then we moved into here and our covered space is not what it used to be so I've kind of condensed absolutely everything into like I reckon what's this space probably two three meters wide maybe and like five meters long <laughs> it's a little but it works um it's annoying if you want to get to the kitchen sometimes and I'm in there but that's yeah it's it's worked and and we're going to stick with it I guess and how do you find um, working? So you're working in a, it is part of your house in your home. Um, how do you find dividing um, home and work or is it just all merged into one for you? I, I feel like it doesn't. It doesn't divide. It is all in one. And I think it's fine though in terms of my partner, I feel like sometimes brings his work home too. Uh, he manages a bunch of chiropractic clinics and one of them is really close by and I do do some work for them as well. So it's not like we have our jobs, we come home and we switch off. We never switch off for both of us. We're always talking about his job, my job, things in between. It's, it's fine and that's how it's, it's always operated. And I think sometimes he likes hearing about the millinery side because it's not chiropractic. So <laughs> he kind of enjoys it. It's more if I'm here and I am up till 3 a.m. and you know I'd sneak into bed and wake him up or something like that that's kind of where it goes wrong a little bit but then at the same time if I had uh, a studio elsewhere and I was staying there until 3am coming home I'd wake him up anyway so it doesn't really make any difference but for me obviously I'd rather be here and just know that my bed is two feet away from me yes absolutely um and what's what projects have you got coming up in the works uh I'm supposed to be making SS20 as we speak and have not really gone that far on it to be honest with you so I've given myself like three weeks um which is how most of my collections come through actually I I've always been one of those people who leaves everything to the last minute ever since I was in high school I left everything to the last minute it I'm gonna say it works for me <laughs> it gives me pressure and I like the pressure and sometimes I do my best thinking when I'm under pressure so there'll be a design that I'll think about two months out and I'll think about this design. The more I think about it, the more it changes in my head. So I think if I've got less time to think about things, they just come out quicker 
and they come out how I want them to. And I'll know straight away it's going to work great. If it's not, ditch it straight away. Like, just shelve it. Let's not force that. So, yeah, SS20 is happening at this point in time and I'm hoping to get 12 designs. I've currently got absolutely nothing. I've got them written down. I just haven't done anything yet. So it's going to be a very busy three weeks. Yeah. The physical immersion of the designs yet to happen <laughs> yeah lots of late nights coming up i think too <laughs> <laughs> and do you do you sketch that or is it something that just happens in your head and then you'll start producing how do you how do you bring those to life i do sketch i don't sketch very well but i do sketch um i didn't in the beginning because i didn't really think that i needed to and then i realized as i was going along something was looking a little bit too similar to something else and i thought i should plan this and make sure it looks cohesive that's the one thing I've always wanted in a collection. And because my collections are quite small as well, I want them to be cohesive because there's no point in making up a piece and going, this is great. Making up the next piece and thinking, how do these link together? Like there is nothing that links these two together except for the fact that they're both made out of cinema and that's not enough. So from now on, I always sketch and occasionally I'll sketch too many and then cross them out. Sometimes I'll sketch too few and then sit there and think I've got to come up with, two more that just fits in with this and then I'll just rehash those ones until I get them right. I look forward to your collection, looking forward to seeing what you create thank um, and you. thank you so much for talking hats with us today. Thank you, thank you for asking me to talk about hats today. Thank you for listening to this episode of Millinery Info. We'd like to thank our Patreon podcast supporters, Miss Heidi Millinery, the Millinery Association of Australia, Catherine Cherry Millinery, The Hat Academy, The Essential Hat, and Louise MacDonald Milliner. You and your business can become Patreon supporters of Millinery Info. There are two levels available, the supporter level or podcast sponsor. The supporter level gives you access to exclusive content on our website. Our podcast sponsor is from $15 per month, and with that you receive a thank you in our monthly podcast, just like this one, link to your website on each podcast article and in our newsletter. You can choose to support ongoing or for a set period of time. It's a great way to have your business, supplies or event heard about in the ears of milliners across the globe. You can keep up to date with the latest podcasts or look back through past episodes on our website or follow along in your favourite podcast app. If you know of someone who might be interested in taking a listen, how about sending them a link to your favourite episode? We hope you've enjoyed this episode with Lisa and we look forward to bringing you another episode soon.